You're listening to the Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 14th day of November, 2010. I'd like to welcome all of the listeners to the Corbett Report podcast and invite them all, as always, to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find more information about this podcast, including past episodes, as well as interviews, articles, and videos created and conducted by myself in the past, and links to other websites that are promoting my work and which I'd like to promote. And on that note, I'd like to add another name to the growing list of affiliates that carry this podcast, and the latest is Grateful Dread Public Radio from Summit, New Jersey, at gdreadradio.net, and they're now broadcasting the Corbett Report on Monday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. So thank you very much to Grateful Dread Public Radio for picking up the Corbett Report. And as always, we always uh, support the idea of community and even pirate radio. So if you know a station in your local area that you think might be uh, susceptible to having the Corbett Report played on it, please let them know about this podcast. And of course, I would also like to greatly thank those who have contributed monetarily to the Corbett Report this week by clicking on the donate button on the homepage, CorbettReport.com, including Mario, Rosemary, and Donald from the USA, Samuel from Belgium, and Robert from Canada. And your donations were especially appreciated as this week I had to renew the domain and uh, hosting for Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist for another year. So thank you very much for helping to make that possible. And this week, on a final piece of housekeeping, for those who may have caught it at the end of New World next week, this week, with James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com, I did announce that the Corbett Report podcast will be going on a two-week hiatus as of this week, meaning there will be no podcast next Sunday or the Sunday after. And unfortunately, that doesn't mean that I'm getting some much-needed rest. It means that I'm actually working on a couple of things behind the scenes, and I hope to be able to unveil them once I come back, and we'll see if I can get that done in time. But at any rate, I will be working on some things behind the scenes, and I suspect there will be some interviews popping up on the Interviews tab of CorbettReport.com in the meantime, so please do check back to the website at least occasionally, and uh, there may be a video or two dropping in that time as well. But other than that, the, the, there will be some a little bit of quietude from the Corbett Report for the next couple of weeks as I work busily behind the scenes. So perhaps that will give you a chance to get caught up with the hours and hours and hours of media that we're releasing on a weekly basis here. And remember, it's all made possible by you, the listeners, and your support, both monetary and otherwise. So without further ado, we have a lot to talk about today as always. So let's get into today's Sunday update. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with your Sunday update for this 14th day of November 2010. And now for the real news. In our top story this week, a researcher at the Prison Planet Forum has located a cache of thousands of archived documents from the former webpage of PTech Inc., including PDFs of corporate information, presentations, and customer data. The treasure trove of archived information is currently being poured over by researchers and is significant because it promises to reveal even more information about the inner workings of P-Tech, a company many suspect of being a key linchpin connecting the worlds of IT infrastructure, covert intelligence operations, and global terrorism. P-Tech CEO is Osama Ziadi. This is him, three years ago in Saudi Arabia. He's pictured with a man named Yasin Al-Qadi, 
a Saudi named by President Bush as a financial backer of Osama bin Laden. Yasin al-Khani uh, fits in this category of wealthy Saudi businessmen who believe in and finance radical Islamic extremist groups worldwide. In an investigation done by CBS station WBZ-TV, three sources say al-Khadi is the chief financial backer of P-TECH. Then there's P-TECH board member Yaqub Mirza. He's an officer for a string of Islamic charities which have been a concern to the U.S. government. This becomes all the more alarming when you learn exactly what it is P-TECH does. The company works in enterprise architecture the blueprinting of an entire computer network. Computer consultant Indira Singh says such a company could gain full access to a client's data. That could be rather dangerous. It could be devastatingly dangerous. Especially when you examine the roster of P-TECH's clients. The company's webpage lists the FBI, the IRS, NATO, the Air Force, the Naval Air Command, the Departments of Energy and Education, the Postal Service, the U.S. House of Representatives. Other sources say P-TECH has done business with the Department of Defense, the Secret Service, even the White House. And that gives you a tremendous opportunity, if you're so inclined, to examine, manipulate, download all of the most sensitive information of whoever it is you've contracted with. Absolutely. Last year, the FBI unsealed a 2007 indictment of former P-TECH CEO Usama Ziad and former CFO Buford George Peterson for lying to investigators about the role of Yasin al-Qadi in helping to fund the company. Yasin al-Qadi was de named a specially designated global terrorist by the U.S. Treasury in the wake of 9-11, and his assets were frozen by the U.S. government. The move against al-Qadi was made largely due to the work of FBI agent Robert Wright, who spent the late 1990s tracking al-Qadi's terror financing in a program called Vulgar Betrayal. Bizarrely enough for people who think that the upper levels of U.S. counterterrorism want to prevent global terrorism instead of foster, fund, and support it, when Wright began to connect al-Qadi to the 1998 African embassy bombings and began pressing for a criminal investigation into the case, his supervisor flew into a rage, saying, you will not open criminal investigations. I forbid any of you, you will not open criminal investigations against any of these intelligence subjects. After 9-11, Wright attempted to go public as a whistleblower about his investigation and how it could have prevented the attacks, but was again thwarted by the FBI, who refused to let him publish a book on the FBI's failures. Knowing what I know, and again, this was written 91 days before the attack, Knowing what I know, I can confidently say that until the investigative responsibilities for terrorism are removed from the FBI, I will not feel safe. The FBI has proven for the past decade it cannot identify and prevent acts of terrorism against the United States and its citizens at home and abroad. Even worse, there is virtually no effort on the part of the FBI's International Terrorism Unit to neutralize known and suspected terrorists residing within the United States. Unfortunately, more terrorist attacks against American interests coupled with the loss of American lives will have to occur before those in power give this matter the urgent attention it deserves. Realizing more American lives are going to be needlessly lost, no one should expect me to consciously sit idly by and pretend to forget the things I know. By sharing what I know, the terrorism problems plugging America may be corrected. Knowing what I know, I truly believe I would be derelict in my duty as an American if I did not do my best to bring the FBI's dereliction of duty to the attention of others. The connection to 9-11 comes from researcher Indira Singh, who was working as a risk management consultant for J.P. Morgan in 2001 and 2002. She was looking at P-TECH software to implement the next generation of risk management enterprise architecture software at J.P. Morgan, but became suspicious after she began her own investigation into the company. She uncovered information that indicated that P-TECH was running its software with access to the most sensitive parts of an organization's cyber infrastructure in the basement of the FAA on the morning of 9-11. P-TECH was with MITRE in the, I say, in the basement of the FAA for two years prior to 9-11. Their specific job was to look at interoperability issues the FAA had with NORAD and the Air Force in the case of an emergency. If anyone was in a position to know that the FAA, there was a window of opportunity or to insert software or to change anything, it would have been PTEC along with MITRE. 
And that ties right back to Michael Rupert's information. The functionality that Michael um, is claiming that Dick Cheney utilized is the exact same functionality I was looking to utilize PTEC for in the bank. I was looking to set up a shadow surveillance system on everything going on, every transaction, and the ability to backdoor, um, look at information unobtrusively, and to backdoor um, intelligent agents out there to do things uh, that other people would not be aware of. Given that no mainstream media outlet anywhere in the world is paying any attention to this story, its ramifications, or the latest developments, experts are suggesting that interested viewers take up the task of relaying this information and examining the archive data for themselves using the links provided with this video. In other news, this week brought an onslaught of bad news for the alarmists who are attempting to peg cyclical climatic variations with man-made CO2. A new study published this week in Science shows that predictions that a warming climate will destroy forests are entirely untrue. The study, conducted by the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute, showed that during a period 56 million years ago known as the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, in which temperatures were 3 to 5 degrees Celsius warmer than today, forests did not die, but instead bloomed with diversity, with many species evolving quicker in the warmer temperatures. The study also concluded that moisture levels did not decrease significantly during the period, contrary to all alarmist predictions and the computer models that they create to provide post-hoc justification for their initial assumptions. In other climate news, researchers at Australian National University released a scathing review of an abandoned solar panel subsidy scheme that cost over $1 billion to Australian taxpayers. The report concludes that the scheme reduced Australia's carbon emissions by a striking 0.015%, meaning that the scheme cost $301 per tonne of carbon saved. What's more, the majority of that billion dollars was spent on panels from foreign manufacturers, meaning that Australian taxpayers were sending hundreds of millions of dollars out of the country for the program. Despite the ongoing meltdown of the carbon-induced warming hypothesis, governments and researchers with a vested interest in keeping the alarmist research funding flowing are scrambling to continue whipping up hysteria over the life-giving CO2 gas in the run-up to next month's climate talks in Cancun, Mexico. In the most blatant example, a recent death in Brazil from a snake bite is being blamed on carbon dioxide. As the warm list at numberwatch.co.uk points out, this is just the latest thing to be blamed on global warming, with several hundred other items, including the downing of Air France Flight 447, increases in kidney stones, psychosocial illness, and, according to the Tokyo governor, the ending of the Olympic Games after 2016. Finally this week, rogue economic analyst Max Kaiser is suggesting a new and remarkably simple way for the average person to strike back against the multi-billion dollar banking behemoths who are manipulating the precious metals markets. A strategy that could bring down JP Morgan itself. I got an idea. Okay. Um, I just started this during the break. You know, I was talking to this guy, Michael Krieger who's uh, someone you should have on your show, by the way. He's very hooked in with the guys over at Zero Hedge. He's a brilliant writer. He's got some fantastic uh, stuff to share. Michael Krieger is his name. Uh, you should have him on your show. But I was talking to him about the fact that if everyone in America uh, bought one silver coin, or even a hundred, if 100 million people in America bought one silver coin, that's 100 million ounces, uh, and take that off the market, it would crash J.P. Morgan, and we would have a scalp. We would have a major victory. So my idea is, what about one of your, you know, force this up to Google search ideas with the search term, crash J.P. Morgan, buy silver? See if we can, in fact, crash J.P. Morgan by getting everybody to buy one ounce of silver. Now please go to CorbettReport.com to download episode 162 of the Corbett Report podcast, Remembering Aaron Russo, where we celebrate the life, work, and achievements of the late, great Aaron Russo. Welcome to episode 162 of the Corbett Report, Remembering Aaron Russo. 
I imagine that the vast majority of the Corbett Report audience will already know to some extent who Aaron Russo was, and just what an important contribution he made to the flowering of the truth movement that has sprung up in the last several years, if only because you may have heard his seminal 2006 documentary, America, Freedom to Fascism, which was delivered as episode 161 of this podcast in our weekly midweek bonus documentary episode. But for those of you out there who may not know Aaron Russo or what he stood for, or may not know in great detail, well, what better way to introduce Aaron Russo to the audience than to let him do so in his own words? I was born a fighter, a scrappy little kid on a Brooklyn block. I bobbed and weaved my way through life as I stood up against the neighborhood bullies. I always hated bullies. There wasn't a dare I wouldn't take on. As I grew older, I learned from the streets. I had a knack for the ladies, a strong right arm, and a love for rock and roll. I opened the Chicago nightclub and booked big-name bands like the Grateful Dead, Led Zeppelin, and The Who. During the 68 convention in Chicago, I watched firsthand as the government raged out of control. I managed Bette Midler, founded the Manhattan Transfer, and was fortunate enough to win an Emmy, a Tony, and my films received six Academy Award nominations. I produced Trading Places, The Rose, and Wise Guys. But today, I am standing in front of the camera to fight for the rights of all Americans. Because today, I am frightened for the future of the country I love. Ladies and gentlemen, Mad as hell, Mr. Aaron Russo. everybody. Welcome to Mad as Hell. I'm here tonight because I'm sick and tired of what's happening to my country. I'm fed up and I feel an overwhelming need to shine a light on, to illuminate our country's problems. And the most fundamental problem we have in America is that it is no longer a free country. And it is fast becoming a totalitarian state. I know those are strong words, but they're true nonetheless. Let me illustrate. Imagine you're calmly driving along in your car, minding your own business. obeying all the traffic laws. And all of a sudden, in your rearview mirror, you see a police car coming up behind you. How does that make you feel? Safe and secure? Or uncomfortable? Let me see you show of hands for uncomfortable. Amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. See, I remember being taught in high school that America was different because it was founded on the principle of liberty. That means nobody can make you do things against your will, including the government. And government's function was to protect that liberty. Everybody, stand up. Stand up. I want you all to recite the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to 
the republic for which it stands. It doesn't say, and to the democracy for which it stands. And to the republic for which it stands. America was founded as a constitutional republic with some democratic principles. A republic is where 99% of the people can't take away the rights of 1%. And that's why America was called a free country. Your rights were guaranteed and absolute. Do you hear our elected representatives telling you our country is a republic? No! no. In a democracy, 51%, the majority, can take away the rights of 49%, the minority. That's not freedom. Who's ever in office determines what rights you have. Like a ping pong ball bouncing back and forth, back and forth. One says abortion's legal, one says it's not. One says gun control, another says no. Taxes are too high, taxes are too low. Balance the budget in seven years, five years, nine years, three years, one year, 18 years. Affirmative action, no affirmative action. Speed limit 55, 75, it's safer, it's not safer. It's insanity! This creates a deep and dark division in America. Left versus right. Rich versus poor. Gender versus gender. That means man versus woman. <laughs> what we need is a set of principles to live by. No matter who's in office. And we have it. It's here. It's called the Constitution. Restore it. Don't ignore it. People often ask me, Aaron, are you a liberal or a conservative? A Democrat or a Republican. Those are just labels. The right question is, Aaron, are you free? Are you free? No. Are you free? No. Are you free? No. Government is the problem, not the solution. centralized government, like ours has become, manipulates us into strict obedience in the name of some contrived greater good. Social engineering. That makes me want to puke! <laughs> because that's the big lie! That concept is the basis for the destruction of America! It is the antithesis of everything we stand for. There is no greater good than each of us being free. That is the ultimate good. Did people really used to talk like that, Granddad? Why, yes, Timmy. That's what people used to talk like before Osama bin Laden invented terrorism and we had to end free speech in the U.S. of A. Well, yes, there you go. There is a firebrand of a man, if ever there was one, speaking truth to power. And I think that's the way that most people will remember Aaron Russo and what he stood for as a political activist and also as a person. 
Of course, I never had the honor of meeting or talking to Aaron Russo, as his work really preceded the Corbett Report and everything that we've done in the last few years, but I feel like I've come to know him from listening to his many interviews and documentaries and various other works, including that one, Mad as Hell, a documentary which is available for purchase as a DVD from freedomtofascism.com. Again, something that I would hope people would do to help support Russo's family. But there you go. There is a man who is absolutely unafraid to speak the truth, and that was recorded decades ago. But all of this still leaves the question of who was Aaron Russo and what really made him tick. How did he go from a successful Hollywood producer to an outspoken political activist and someone who ended up running for the governorship of Nevada in 1998 and eventually running for Libertarian Party presidential nominee in 2004, losing to Michael Badnerick, who we heard from last week on this uh, podcast in the third round of voting for that ballot. And then how did he go from that position of political activism to his incredible documentary, Freedom to Fascism, and all of the flowering of potential and activism that that unlocked? Well, good question. And again, let's let him answer it in his own words. And this comes from a video interview that was recorded shortly before his death in August of 2007. Aaron Russo, at that time six years into his fight with cancer and struggling with great pain and duress, recorded his final interview with Alex Jones of Infowars.com. This video is widely available online under Reflections and Warnings, and is also available as a DVD that can be purchased from Infowars.com. And in this interview, they go into great depth, as we've heard actually previously on this podcast for people who've been listening for a long time. You might remember this is the interview in which Aaron Russo explains his friendship with Nicholas Rockefeller and all of the things that he learned from the inside from that Rockefeller-connected family member who was telling him about things like 9-11 11 months before it ever happened. Of course, all of that information is absolutely vital, so I would once again urge people to go and watch this entire video if they haven't done so already, and if they have, to go and get this video out to as many people as possible. But right now, let's listen to a different part of that interview, in which Aaron Russo is talking about his early life and what got him started along thinking along these lines of freedom and liberty. Well, that, that was a, a progression of events. Uh, I became, very, I've always been a very independent person, always believed in individuality, and that we were put on this earth to be uh, unique individuals to fulfill our God-given potential, and that uh, the only way to fulfill your potential is to be free, to find out who you are, and to make your errors, to make mistakes. And as I, as, uh, I grew up, I began to realize more and more the government was inhibiting me in things that I wanted to do. And uh, what happened, uh, I was very successful in the ladies' lingerie business. I worked for my dad. He had a small undergarment business. And I created the first ladies' bikini panties back in 1963, actually. And then I opened up a, um, a nightclub in Chicago called the Electric Theater uh, that, that opened up the day Martin Luther King was assassinated. Right? And so the city of Chicago was in flames the day my club opened, and nobody came out to the club. And um, well, what happened was that um, uh, that was the year of the Democratic Convention in Chicago in 68. And so my club became a hangout for the hippies, you know, because they, they wanted to go to Chicago and protest what was going on. And I was having a concert at my club one night to raise money. And uh, the police uh, raided the nightclub, my club for no reason at all. And uh, I was standing outside my, in my office, looking, overlooking the street, and I saw all these paddy wagons pulling up in front of my club. And I was a 24-year-old kid. You know, I had no experience at all, really. So what are these paddy wagons doing here? And then I saw all these cops getting out of the paddy wagons coming into my club. I said, oh my God, they're raiding me. And so uh, I ran down to the stage, and I got on the stage, and I stopped the band from playing. And I said to the people in the audience, we're being raided, you know, so uh, sit down on the floor, cooperate, you know, you know, and uh, uh, plot your identification and cooperate with the police. And as I said that, uh, two of the cops from behind threw me onto the floor and grabbed me and, and started dragging me out of the club. Uh, and uh, I'm going... You know, victory, victory, you know, playing it for all it was worth at the time. I was a kid, and uh, 
Uh, and then I saw the fire department there, and the fire department was dumping garbage cans, the garbage, all over the floor. And I thought to myself, well, why are they doing that? You know, very quickly, as, I was as they were dragging me out. And I didn't quite understand it. So they threw me into the paddy wagon. As I got to the paddy wagon, one of the cops grabbed my testicles from behind and squeezed. And I went to the paddy wagon in gigantic pain. And uh, the next person that came into the paddy wagon, the cop, as he was stepping in, the cops took the billy club, smashed him on the head with it, and just split his skull. You know, for no reason. I mean, there was nothing wrong. That was kind of your awakening. That was my awakening. It's like, what is going on? I thought this was America. So I initially blamed it on Chicago and Mayor Daly. Think it was just that it was, it was Chicago. And anyway, I went on the. I went. It was the headlines of the newspapers the next day. You know, there was my picture in the newspapers. Headlines: Electric theater short circuited. It was raided. And in the article, uh, they went ahead and they said that uh, the reason they raided the club was because the fire department came there and saw it was messy, full of garbage, and the hippies started attacking them, which was totally not true. Those yeah. dirty hippies? It was, yeah, it was totally false. You know, it was, it was a complete fabrication. So they ran a false flag on you. They yeah. you. Yeah, they, of course. You know, and uh, I was in shock. I said, people lie like that? People actually do these things? I couldn't believe it. You know, it was like, it was an awakening to me. And I went on television, I told people on television that they lied. Nobody cared. Nobody cared what the truth was. You know, it was shocking to me. Um, and then a, 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 week or, a week or two weeks later, I forget exactly what it was, uh, two, two cops come to see me, a lieutenant and a, and a sergeant, a captain and a sergeant. And they said, Mr. Russo, we're sorry if you got hurt that night at the club and the raid, but... Uh, we're here to tell you that if you want to keep the club open, it's going to take uh, $2,000 a month, and we're going to come see you once a month, and whenever we have to raid you, we're going to call you, you know, and we'll let you know we're going to come in tonight and raid you. This was mafia. Uh, well, the police mafia, yeah. you know. And uh, actually, it was actually, actually more interesting that they said, listen, there's the A plan, there's the B plan, and there's the super dogs plan. And this one, of course, each one, of course, that much money a month. Which one do you want? What was the Super Deluxe? That's the one I took. That was a 2000 a month plan. And I took that plan, and um, I paid them $2,000 a month, and they left me alone. And whenever they were going to raid the club, they would come there, we were going to raid, we're going to have a phony raid tonight, you know, just to look good for the people in the neighborhood, you know. So that was your first big education? That was my education into corruption in government, you know. But I really thought that was basically Chicago. I didn't realize it was the whole country was like that. And so that was my wake-up call, that people lie and cheat and steal. And uh, I thought everybody was always honest and nice and decent. And uh, I had no idea about any of these things. Well, what happened with me was that they finally one day they came to me and they said, look, we, we, we can't take your money anymore. I said, why, what's up? What's going on? I said, we have to close your club. This election's coming. And the aldermen and the neighbor don't want you open anymore. So we can't take your money. So I had to go to court and fight them, and they were trying to close the club. And then one night there was a fire, and the club never reopened again. It was, they, the club just closed, and that was the end of the club. And they, they, they burned me down. Well, certainly nothing like getting a shakedown from a government-approved mafia organization like the Chicago PD in order to wake one up and get one started along the path to libertarianism. And uh, I guess that worked for Aaron Russo, who from that point on, I guess, was probably more quizzical about some of the things that were being told to him by the government and the media. And uh, you can go again and listen to that entire interview and find out about some of the other formative things that helped him along that path, including such ridiculous things as laws being retroactively applied to uh, silver brokers and traders like himself, who then had to go and retroactively pay penalties for laws that they hadn't broken, but which the government was now retroactively passing. Just mind-boggling things like that that start one along a certain path of questioning what the system is really about and who it's really benefiting. And I think once Aaron Russo's eyes were opened and he saw the injustice, well, as he said at the beginning of today's episode, he was a fighter and he liked to stand up to bullies. And that was obviously something that motivated him in his struggle for the truth. I think one place where that comes into great perspective is from what I think is one of my favorite parts of his seminal 2006 documentary, Freedom to Fascism, 
where he's talking to ex-IRS commissioner and one of the men who wrote the tax code, Sheldon Cohen, about the tax honesty movement and the concerns of many very honest and very real and learned individuals such as ex-IRS agents who have come to realize that there is in fact no law requiring the average citizen to pay an income tax because income, as the Supreme Court has defined, is in fact a profit or gain from commercial activity by a corporate body, not the labor or wages of an average individual. Now, for those of you who have listened to episode 161, in which we played the audio of that documentary, or for those who have watched the documentary itself, you'll know that this is an extremely interesting and extremely fruitful line of research that leads one in some very startling directions and really propels one along the path of questioning everything that we've been taught, as it certainly must have for Mr. Russo and for many of the people who came to this movement by watching America Freedom to Fascism which again is available for purchase at freedomtofascism.com. But right now I'd like to play a section, just a short clip from the Freedom to Fascism documentary of my favorite part in which Aaron Russo is debating Sheldon Cohen, ex-IRS commissioner, about the tax honesty movement and the points that it raises. And Sheldon Cohen's responses are quite unbelievable in, in many respects and really show the blatant hypocrisy and just the brute violence which supports the system rather than any sort of reasoning, logic, or skilled debate. So let's take a listen to that clip from Aaron Russo's 2006 documentary, America, Freedom to Fascism. I was very impressed with the people in the tax honesty movement. They weren't kooks. They were highly intelligent well-researched, and very genuine. I was wondering why I never heard about all these Supreme Court decisions in the media. So I really wanted the IRS's point of view, because to get the true story, it was imperative I hear both sides. I kept wishing Anthony Burke would call me back. He seemed like an honest man. I then proceeded to call my message machine. Hi, this message is for Aaron Russo. This is Anthony Burke at the Internal Revenue Service. Let me uh, suggest... Uh some people that you might want to think about talking to. Uh, one would be Don Alexander, who's a former commissioner who's here in town in Washington. Uh, another would be Sheldon Cohen, who is uh, both a former commissioner and former uh, chief counsel. All those guys, I think, can answer your question about, you know, uh, where in the tax law it says that you have to pay taxes. Wow, good news, I thought. So I called Sheldon Cohen because he used to be the IRS commissioner. He wrote the tax code. And he was also general counsel to the IRS. He is a true expert, and I couldn't find a better person to answer my questions. He graciously agreed to my interview. The reason I'm doing this documentary is because there are many people in America today who believe that there's no law that requires them to pay an income tax or file a 1040. And there are many people going to jail for it, fighting over it. The Internal Revenue Code is authorized by the 16th Amendment. I think it should be clarified. I, don't, I, don't, I think government should be transparent to the people. Why doesn't the IRS commissioner sit down with them and just explain it in clear English? Why? I don't the think they really care. They don't think. I, th I think they're just playing word games. I mean, you don't you think know, they're sincere people? You know? No, I don't think they're sincere people. What does voluntary compliance mean? And why does the IRS code say it's voluntary to comply, not mandatory? That's a word euphemism. We use we, we use voluntary compliance when we when we when we talk about traffic signals. Most people at two o'clock in the morning, do you stop at a red light? Yeah. Is there a cop there? Well, sometimes I don't. Well, <laughs> I do. I do. And most of us do. Most of us do. Right. Um, but that's voluntary compliance. That was a complete perversion of logic. Traffic laws state that it is mandatory to stop at a red light. The IRS code says it's voluntary to comply. Mandatory and voluntary are the complete opposite of each other. Yet he wants us to believe that they mean the same thing. So can the government criminally prosecute somebody of information put on their 1040? Yes. Right, so doesn't that violate the Fifth Amendment? No. Uh, but the Fifth Amendment says I, I, I don't have to do anything that incriminates myself. Well, it doesn't incriminate you to put, to put but, your income down. But you said before I could be put in jail for it. The commissioner wants us to believe that although the IRS demands that you fill out the 1040 and you can go to jail for it, that they are not violating your Fifth Amendment rights of self-incrimination. 
That is absurd. Isn't it true that the word income is not defined anywhere in the Internal Revenue Code? The law says that the, the government has a right to tax income from any source derived. So, but the word income is not defined in the code. It just says income without a definition That's right. of what income is. That's right. Correct? Yeah. But there are many different kinds of taxes. Well, how can an American citizen know what income is if the code doesn't define it? If they're paying an income because tax... Because the courts have all defined it. Do you remember what constitutional attorney Edwin Vieira said? The definition of income in the Constitution was given in the Eisner versus Montgomery case. And it turns on gains or profits that are made from some activity. So the Supreme Court has ruled... Income is not wages, it's not labor, it's gain from corporate activity. I believe that a man's labor is his private property. That's your view, but it's not the law. The Supreme Court's even said your labor is your private property. When I go to work for somebody, it's a trade, it's an even exchange. I do some work, you give me some money. In 1916, we had the Bruce Haber case and the Stanton case. And the Bruce case and the Stanton case said that the 16th Amendment gave the government no new taxing power. I, I'm not going to argue the niceties of that with you. And it came up again in a case called Peck versus Lowe, where, where the Supreme Court said the 16th Amendment did not extend Congress's taxing power to any new or accepted subjects. In other words, if you weren't taxable before the 16th, you weren't taxable after the 16th. Today I interviewed a juror. Okay, I was set on a case, and uh, they found the person not guilty for lack of filing, okay? And I asked her why they found them not guilty. And she said, because the IRS couldn't show us the law that made him liable to file a 1040. All they need to do, if there is a law, is to show us the law, which, of course, they never did. And the reason they didn't do it was why? Because there is no law. Title 26 requires you to file a return. But doesn't Title 26 have to be in compliance with the Supreme Court decisions? You're going to take a 1920 case and superimpose it on the whole Internal Revenue Code that was written after it? No, that's not... I can't believe what I just heard. Rewind. <laughs> You're going to take a 1920 case and superimpose it on the whole Internal Revenue Code that was written after it? No, that's not... Remember he said earlier the Internal Revenue Code was authorized by the 16th Amendment? The Internal Revenue Code is authorized by the 16th Amendment. Remember, the Supreme Court said the 16th Amendment did not give the government any new taxing power. These decisions have never been overturned. Let's listen further. Can the lower courts overrule the Supreme Court? No. How are they putting people in jail today for not paying a tax on their labor when the Supreme Court said they don't have to? Doesn't the IRS code have to be in compliance with the Supreme Court? That's my Aaron, big question. This is a waste of time. Well, let me because just... whatever I say, you're not going to believe. He's right. I don't believe him. And neither should you. He wants us to believe we should obey the IRS code, which is being enforced in violation of the many Supreme Court decisions. If no, the no, Supreme no, Court made a decision... Thank you, thank you, Aaron. I think we're finished. I'm sorry, Mr. Cohen, you're doing that. Well, I'm sorry that you, you constantly re-argue the point. You're liable because the law says that you're liable, but and the courts say the law says you're liable, and that's why you're liable. You see, he's talking about the lower courts, who are not in compliance with the Supreme Court, as they have to be. Doesn't the court have to be in compliance with the Supreme Court? The Supreme Court has so held. Where? You caught me unprepared. I'll come back. Well, I don't want to do that. But let, let me ask you a hypothetical question. No. You're I'm, making silly arguments here. Why is the Supreme Court decision a silly argument? Be, well, because it's inapplicable. That made my heart stop. He just said Supreme Court decisions do not apply to the IRS. That's the behavior you would expect from a totalitarian country, maybe China or Russia or Cuba, not from America. They're just making up the law as they go along. Now I knew the tax honesty movement was right. The IRS thrives on intimidation and fear, not by law. It's no different than a criminal protection racket using force to extract your money from you. Then the former IRS commissioner, now working at a prestigious Washington law firm, threatens me.
Watch. Aaron, you understand Yiddish. Cornish to help For those of you who don't understand Yiddish, that means nothing will help you. Well, as I say, I think that clip exposes quite brilliantly the hypocrisy that underlies the system and the fact that the system is absolutely unwilling to engage in debate over its existence because, of course, that's taken for granted because they own the SWAT teams that can come and enforce their rules anytime they want. So what are you going to do about it? And that's exactly what Aaron Russo was fighting against and what he fought against so eloquently, so bravely, so courageously, and with such tireless passion through many years, but of course during the production of that incredible documentary, Freedom to Fascism. And it's no surprise, I think, to anyone who's watched that documentary, that that documentary did have such a powerful effect and woke up so many people to what was really going on. And of course, in the latter stages of that documentary, getting into much more than simply the tax honesty movement, getting into the very base of how the Federal Reserve was created and what it was created for, and then the larger agenda at play with the creation of global government through regional governments and all of the uh, various steps towards a new world order which we've been outlining on this podcast since its inception. I think it's all contained in the kernel of what was freedom to fascism, and that was such a powerful tool for awakening so many people to what is and has been coming for a long time. And I also think from Aaron Russo's interviews and documentaries and other work, from his time as a nightclub entrepreneur, to his time managing Bette Midler in New York, to his time as a Hollywood producer with films like The Rose and Trading Places, to his time as a political candidate and then to a documentary filmmaker. I think it's quite evident that Aaron Russo was a human dynamo and one that was not easily stopped, but eventually it was stopped. On August 24th, 2007, Aaron Russo eventually lost his six-year battle with bladder cancer. And I will put in a link in the documentation section for today's episode to the online memorial for Aaron Russo, where you can leave your own thoughts on Aaron Russo and the effect that he had on your life, and the effect that he continues to have on many people's lives. Aaron Russo passed away on the 24th of August, 2007, and five days later on the 29th of August, 2007, His girlfriend of 27 years and the woman with whom he had two sons, Heidi Gregg, appeared on The Alex Jones Show to talk about Aaron Russo, his life, and his legacy. Heidi, what were some of the things that, if you would share this with the audience, I'd appreciate it. If you don't feel like it, if it's too painful, I understand. Well, well, the audience and and a lot of us would like to know uh, some of the last things Aaron said or or anything he wanted to impart to the world, uh, you know, there at the end, or or did he know know, going into late last week that that, uh, he was at the end of the road? He would just like people to keep on fighting a good fight and to fight for their rights and what they believe in and to just carry his message and platform and hopefully elect a president where we will have some change in this country. Do you specifically remember his his last words on the freedom movement? There weren't last words on the freedom movement. But but I mean the freedom he did. movement had gotten quiet for him. He had to stop doing the freedom movement for a while for his own health at the end. I remember just a few about a month and a half ago. Yes. It was time he had to just stop with that. It had to stop. Yeah, I don't think people realize, and I didn't really want to broadcast at the time, but he was in tough shape when I saw him in January, and he was still doing yeah. interviews and trying to go places. And he was doing everything till the very end because he was a mental person and he had a vision. And when you have a vision, you live that vision. You don't deal always in reality. You you see your vision and you want to complete it, and it needs to be completed before you move on. And he worked very hard to get this movement going. How sick was Aaron when he he told me he was very sick whenever he made America Freedom to Fascism, but he kept that quiet? he was very sick then. He was very sick. But his vision and his passion carried him through the making of the film, the editing of the film. He did everything himself. He had helpers. But really, he's, you know, he's a hands-on guy, and he does it himself, you know. So that was his message, that was his film, and that is who he is. Heidi, is it, is it I mean, how are you handling things just a few days into this? Is it starting to, uh, I mean, are you missing Aaron? Oh, of course. Oh, I miss him dearly. 
it's very quiet around here. He was a big man, and he, he, there was always noise around him, and everybody who comes over goes, this is really weird in here, let's go out, because <laughs> it's so quiet. I think people but, feel that his spirit has moved on. Oh, of course his spirit has moved on. We're all, our spirits move on. We are energy, and we live forever. And Aaron will live forever, and all these people's hearts and minds, through everything he's done. Hiding Whether it's his Hollywood films or his political movement, you know, it, it doesn't die. There's a record of it all. Heidi Gregg, stay there. We're going to come right back and talk more about uh, your sweetheart, your boyfriend of 27 years, who you had uh, children with, uh, just a great man, Aaron Russo. Once again, Heidi Gregg and Aaron Russo's family can be supported by purchases of Freedom to Fascism and Mad as Hell DVDs from freedomtofascism.com. And although, of course, it is sad to see the passing of such a dynamic and vital human spirit as Aaron Russo's, it is, of course, not the end of the story. In fact, it is really only the beginning, because as we have seen, Aaron Russo's life and work has touched so many other lives and inspired so much other action that really we are only beginning to understand how it's unfolding. In the time after the release of Freedom to Fascism and before his passing, Aaron Russo noted that he had created a groundswell of support for political action along the lines of ending the Federal Reserve and stopping the National Real ID Act and all of the other things that had been suggested at the end of Freedom to Fascism as ways that people could fight back against the system that was trying to enslave them. And he realized that he needed to organize that and put it into some sort of organization that could affect change on a mass societal level. And he did that in an organization called Restore the Republic. And also realizing that he would eventually have to pass on and leave this work to someone else, he appointed Gary Franchi, a political activist who had organized the Lone Lantern Society, as his successor and the national director of Restore the Republic which is available at RestoreTheRepublic.com and now at RTR.org with a social networking tool for people who are interested in this type of political activism. It was my honor to speak to Gary Franchi earlier this week about Aaron Russo's legacy that is being carried on at Restore the Republic and how the spark that Aaron Russo ignited in the minds of men with his documentaries has now taken shape into a mass political movement that is affecting real change. All right, well, uh, let's start by finding out a little bit about yourself and your background. How did you start to become involved with the Liberty Movement? Uh, you know, it, it's kind of a long story. When I was about 17 years old, I had read some books and, and started to uh, plant some seeds uh, about global government, about the New World Order, about uh, you know where we're going and where we're headed as a country. Uh, but the years had passed, and uh, sort of those ideas and concepts lay dormant for many, many years until uh, I saw a film uh, by Alex Jones, which really, really reignited some of those, those old flames and, 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 and um, uh, seeds, I, I should say. And then uh, I decided to create an organization called the Lone Lantern Society. And while that organization was just getting started, I met Aaron Russo and, uh, during a premiere of his film, America, Freedom, the Fascism. And uh, it's been a pretty wild ride ever since. I can certainly imagine it must have been. What was it like meeting Aaron Russo and, and what was your friendship like? Well, Russo, I met him at a screening of the film. Uh, you know, I was just, you know, fanboy going up getting a picture and, a, and an autograph. And, you know, I had my, my tiny little MPEG recorder and asking him questions and, you know, I ran home and, and cut together a little video about him uh, talking about his film at one of the premieres. And I shared that with uh, one of his organizers. And before he knew it, I was on the phone with, with Russo, uh, giving him my immediate feedback about the film. So I, I was really in shock that I was just thrust into the situation as I was. But I must have, I must have really left a mark on Russo because... When he came back through town a couple months later for another screening of his film at, at uh, Navy Pier in Chicago, he specifically requested that I meet with him at his hotel. And sure enough, you know, myself, my wife, uh, and, and a small group of people met 
with Aaron Russo uh, at the Sofitel on Michigan Avenue, and we stayed up till about 3.30 in the morning discussing you know, the future of America, freedom to fascism, uh, the movement to restore America, and, and how all these different things would play out. Uh, it was a, a night that I'll never, ever forget. And, you know, Russo was always, he was always a happy, jolly man, but he, you know, he definitely had drive and ambition, and he knew what he wanted. Uh, so, you know, that combination really was a very powerful uh, combination, characters, uh, characteristics that Russo had. And I was just, you know, I was just a guy that was just thrown into it all and had a passion of my own to see change happen in America, uh, but change coming from a constitutional perspective, change from, uh, from the people's uh, perspective. Well, that's right. That must have been an amazing experience. So, so tell us a little bit about what Aaron Russo was like as a, as a person and what types of things that you talked about. Well, you know, when I worked with him behind the scenes, uh, with, a, with Freedom to Fascism, mostly uh, helping him streamline DVD sales and, uh, and, and his website stuff. So I kind of worked behind the scenes in, in that regard. Uh, you know, we, my wife and I would call him on his birthday and wish him a happy birthday. And he, always, he, would always, he would always answer the phone. He'd be like, hey, babe, you know, and he had this really typical Hollywood sense. You know, he always referred to, you know, uh, my wife is sweetheart. And, you know, he, he was always just such a... a a happy, lovable guy. But when it came down to business, um, you know, like I said, he knew what he wanted, and he made sure that it was it, it, it that it took place the, just like he wanted it to to happen. Um, so, you know, you, you had two sides to the man. You had the side where he was, you know, obviously your friend and, and your uh, uh, you know your buddy. But then you also had that 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 hard nosed Hollywood producer that you know was going to get something accomplished. So, you know, it was difficult to balance some of those things because, you know, just by the mere fact that, you know, there was a lot of pressure uh, on me when I became the National Director of Restore the Republic. So the, the relationship really started to shift because I now had the whole weight of his responsibility on my shoulders. Uh, we, you know, at the time we had 60,000 people on an email list and we had to develop a new method to be compliant with you know spam regulations and government regulations for email delivery and we had we devised a new program to deliver email messages to the members and I remember when we uh, when we started this new system we went from 60,000 emails to 6,000 opting back in so Russo immediately saw that as you know a complete failure uh, you know because only 6,000 people actually stayed on board with what was going on. Uh, so, I, and he was ready to throw in the towel. And I said, Russo, we cannot throw in the towel. You know, we have to keep fighting. We have to move forward. Um, and, you know, I really fought to keep Restore the Republic when he was ready to toss it away. And we have since grown that email list back up to 45, 50,000 people, an online membership of over 24,000 people, uh, social networking, uh, documentaries, uh, reality report weekly news uh, uh, shows um, now we're doing live shows uh, for we, we just came off the heels of a four-hour live broadcast event where we're, we're, we were skyping in live guests from all over the country uh, you know dorm rooms full of kids who are taking action uh, you know supporting different you know efforts you know, whether it's end the fed or, or Ron Paul or or you know just a whole host of issues you know it's we're really preserving that legacy and that of, of, of action and education that Russo left behind. Once again, Gary Franchi of RestoreTheRepublic.com and RTR.org, the embodiment of the legacy of Aaron Russo and that which we, he was fighting for. And I suggest people go there to check out the work that Restore the Republic is doing, including the Reality Report and all of the other incredible media that's being produced, and very well-produced media as well. So my hat's off to Restore the Republic and Gary Franchi for so excellently continuing on the Aaron Russo legacy, because Aaron Russo may no longer be with us here in body, but he is definitely here in spirit, and his spirit continues to animate those who are seeking the truth and standing up to the bullies. Again, what more apt way could we find to end today's episode than to leave the final word to the late, great Aaron Russo? That's all for this week. I am your host, James Corbett, asking you to join me again next month for the continuation of the Corbett Report podcast. Americans, 
mobilize. Stand together, stand tall, tell the government you're mad as hell, no longer cooperate with the government, do not accept the national ID card, do everything in your power to restore freedom and your individuality back to America. Stop being a country run by the institutions for the institutions. Let's go back to we the people, by the people, for the people, as opposed to we the institution, by the institution, for the institution. Stand up for your individual rights. Stand up for the godliness that's in each and every one of us.